Hello and welcome to Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today we are going to be looking at corruption and conspiracy in the world of finance. The specific topics we're going to go over will be central banks in general. We'll talk a little bit about that and then get into the Federal Reserve System. I know we've talked about the Federal Reserve before and probably will again, but I will try to bring some new information and some quotes and just talk about how that meeting came to be at Jekyll Island and what the Fed does and some of the results of that. Then we'll go through the Bank for International Settlements then the Bretton Woods Conference, and through that, the IMF and the World Bank. Then I will discuss crony capitalism, and then we'll get into regulation and taxes and how all that comes to play and some of the problems with those. And then we might wrap it up with a little bit about the Rothschilds. That's the probably the most famous financial family and name in the world so we should get to that if this episode is too long i might save that for its whole own episode we will see how time goes so i would like to start off with a quote from one of our most quoted sources here carol quigley he wrote and i quote the powers of financial capitalism had a far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalistic fashion by the central banks of the world, acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent meetings and conferences. So that should set the stage pretty well for this episode. To begin with, I want to start with central banks and just the idea of a central bank. I don't want to go into too much detail, but from a broad perspective, the idea of a central bank is to manage the currency of a nation. They manage the money supply. They manage interest rates. They are a lender of last resorts, so if the government can't get any more money from other governments or other states or other institutions, the central bank will always be there to loan them more money if they need it. The central bank is also there to stabilize in a crisis time, so if there is a huge downturn or market instability, then the central bank can step in and act. Again, kind of like the lender of last resorts mentality there. And the result of central banking, and almost every country in the world has a central bank now, North Korea is about the only large country I've been able to find that still does not have a central bank or something that operates almost exactly like a central bank. So, the results of this is that we have a shift away from the free market, which happened a long time ago. Central banks have been going on for a long time. This isn't recent, but as central banks became more and more popular, you start seeing a shift from the free market to a system of centralized control where you have central planning, governments operate everything, they do it all themselves. And these central banks are usually either private or heavily privatized, and they are given a monopoly on money, pretty much. And if you 
don't know already, a monopoly is really only possible and historically has only happened when the government has issued a monopoly. That used to be the definition of monopoly was that a government grants permission for one company to do one thing and does not allow any competition. That was what monopoly used to mean years ago. And so this idea of having a central bank and what that does and what that creates in a financial market that kind of overlays over all the information we're going to talk about today. And that's really a tool that has been used to control, corrupt, manipulate markets, governments, everything else, because really, it's the only way to do so. If you want to control the money of a government, and we've read the quote from Rothschild a few times before, uh, something to the extent of, I care not who sits on the throne, give me control of the money supply and I control the government, and that's the mentality. Well, how can you do that if the money supply is not centrally controlled? You can't just take over a nation's money supply if it's a total free market system with many different independent banks that are operating in a free market, you just can't do that. You can take over one of the banks and you can have some influence, but you can't take over basically the country by taking over its money supply and controlling what the government can pay for and how it pays for it and that kind of thing. So the only way to do this is to create a central bank, have one centralized source that controls everything related to monetary policy and the money of the nation as a whole. And then you can use that as a tool to enact the different effects that you want to enact on a nation or on an economy or on a market. So let's go to a specific example of a central bank. This is the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve is technically not a central bank. It is a little different, but it serves the same role. It basically does the same thing. So it falls in line with the same overall concept of central banking, of creating this centralized source for all things monetary. And so for a little bit of background, we had a crisis and it was known as the Panic of 1907. It is reported in many different sources that this panic was actually started by the bankers themselves, but I can't find actual evidence that this is the case, so I am not going to say that definitively, but we can say the bankers may have possibly um, initiated this crisis. And so when the panic of 1907 happens, you end up with a a stock market crash and runs on the banks, and so this is a big problem, obviously. And so what happened was J.P. Morgan ended up getting together with many of the other top bankers and top industrialists at that time and basically convinced them, and he did it himself, they all propped up the system with their own personal money and with the money of their businesses. And they basically did what the Federal Reserve did during the financial crisis of 2008, where the Fed stepped in and bought a bunch of assets, bought a bunch of stocks, bought a bunch of bonds, and basically propped up the markets after that first initial crash. Well, that's what J.P. Morgan and the people that he met up with did in the Panic of 1907. Everything crashed, there were bank runs, and they stepped in, injected a lot of money into the system, bought up a lot of things, and, 
Well, as I'm sure you could guess, these were at dirt cheap prices. So as they propped up the system and the and the markets recovered over the next few years, they actually made quite a bit of money as well. So that's a bonus. One interesting example here that I ran across was that you had a company that J.P. Morgan brought together, basically. He merged the Carnegie Steel Company. He merged that with a company from... Albert Geary, who was in government and politics and also in business, and Henry Moore had a company as well. Moore actually had created 11 companies that I could find between him and his brother, and they were banks, railroads, insurance, uh, names that you might recognize like Western Union and First National Bank. So these three guys, Carnegie, Geary, and Moore, all had companies that were in the steel industry, J.P. Morgan came in and convinced them all to merge together. And that was under the leadership of J.P. Morgan, who then had large control over the new entity that was called the U.S. Steel Company. Now, when this panic happened and stocks were tanking, there was a large brokerage firm that had used the stock of the Tennessee Coal and Iron and Railroad Company as collateral. And as this crash happened, they were at risk of basically totally going bankrupt, and someone had to step in and save them from this emergency. And what I saw as a, quote, emergency takeover by Morgan's U.S. Steel Company occurred, and the U.S. Steel Company became even more of a monopoly in the industry since they were able to gather up into itself the Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Company, which was a competitor. And so through this crisis, not only did J.P. Morgan and others buy up a lot of assets at dirt cheap prices and cause them to start rising in prices, they also bought up companies as a whole, which were starting to go bankrupt and having major problems. They bought them at dirt cheap prices as well. And so there was a lot of money to be made here. But that wasn't the point. The point was that after this crash, the public in general was crying out for regulation because they didn't want a market crash. And these do hurt people, individuals specifically. And so what they wanted was basically the government to step in, make some regulations, get control of the banks, and actually do something about it. I'm going to just read a few things here about what happened after this panic when J.P. Morgan and the other bankers decided to get together and not only get control of the panic and stop the crisis and the crash, but also create some regulation and be in control of that themselves instead of letting it take on a life of its own and letting the public and the government control all those rules. And so this of course, leads to the creation of the Federal Reserve System. Now, I want to start off with a quote from President Franklin Roosevelt, and he said in November of 1933, quote, The real truth of the matter is, as you and I know, that a financial element in the large centers has owned the government since the days of Andrew Jackson. So it was not a big secret that the large financial industry and specific players had a very large role to play in the government, and he says since the days of Andrew Jackson. 
which is whenever you started to see a move away from the free market system after Jackson's years and more towards the centralized system and government control. So fancy that. Now, for the Federal Reserve System, I want to read a few quotes and sections for kind of how this got started. This episode overall is supposed to be around the theme of conspiracy and corruption, and the way that the Federal Reserve System was created and designed has a lot of conspiracy to it. Let me start off with a quote from Frank Vanderlip, who was at the meeting on Jekyll Island, and if you haven't listened to the episode on fractional reserve banking and the Federal Reserve that we did a while ago, then this might be new to you, so To introduce you to this idea, there was a meeting at Jekyll Island where a group of bankers met up and created what was to then later become the Federal Reserve System, and they did this in secret. And so that's what I'm referring to here. And so Vanderlip, who was at that meeting, he said, I quote, There was an occasion near the close of 1910 when I was as secretive, indeed as furtive, as any conspirator. I do not feel it is any exaggeration to speak of our secret expedition to Jekyll Island as the occasion of the actual conception of what eventually became the Federal Reserve System. We were told to leave our last names behind us. We were told further that we should avoid dining together on the night of our departure. We were instructed to come one at a time and as unobtrusively as possible to the railroad terminal on the New Jersey literal of the Hudson, where Senator Aldrich's private car would be in readiness, attached to the rear end of a train for the south. Once aboard the private car, we began to observe the taboo that had been fixed on last names. Discovery, we knew, simply must not happen, or else all our time and effort would be wasted. So that was the view of someone who was there, and that is what he had said about the time himself. Now, I want to read a section that comes from the founder of Forbes magazine, Bertie Charles Forbes. This excerpt reads, and I quote, Picture a party of the nation's greatest bankers stealing out of New York on a private railroad car under the cover of darkness, stealthily riding hundreds of miles south, embarking on a mysterious launch, sneaking onto an island deserted by all but a few servants, living there a full week under such rigid secrecy that the names of not one of them was once mentioned, lest the servants learn the identity and disclose to the world this strangest, most secret expedition in the history of American finance. I am not romancing. I am giving to the world, for the first time, the real story how the famous Aldrich Currency Report, the foundation of our new currency system, was written. The utmost secrecy was enjoined upon all. The public must not glean a hint of what was to be done. Senator Aldrich notified each one to go quietly into a private car of which the railroad had received orders to draw up on an unfrequented platform. Off the party set. New York's ubiquitous reporters had been foiled. Nelson Aldrich had confided to Henry, Frank, Paul, and Piot that he was to keep them locked up at Jekyll Island out of the rest of the world until they had evolved and compiled a scientific currency system for the United States, the real birth of the present Federal Reserve System. The plan, done on Jekyll Island in the conference with Paul, Frank, and Henry, 
Warburg is the link that binds together the Aldrich system and the present system together. He, more than any one man, has made the system possible as a working reality. Now, when Warburg is mentioned, the connection with Warburg is that he represented the company of Kuhnleb, and that was a very big bank at the time. But also, if you go back a little further, there are direct connections between him and the Rothschilds. And the Rothschilds were also the ones that funded J.P. Morgan and his early endeavors. And the Rockefellers and some of their early endeavors. So you start to see a theme here with the Rothschilds. They have their hands in a lot of different things. So all these people met up in secret at Jekyll Island. They created what was to be the Federal Reserve System. The way it ended up playing out was that Senator Aldrich who was actually the father-in-law of John D. Rockefeller and had recently established and chaired a commission to investigate the crisis that had just happened and propose a solution in his role as a government official. But Aldrich, he did present this idea that all these people came up with at Jekyll Island. He wrote a bill and presented it, and it got voted down because people basically saw right through it and saw that this was coming basically from the bankers themselves. And although they did not know about the Jekyll Island meeting at the time, it had not been public information yet, it was easy enough to spot. And so what ended up happening is that There were other people in government that were tied with these bankers and uh, prominent businessmen. And so what happened was the plan got rewritten and it ended up getting reintroduced by another politician on the other side of the aisle. And when it did, Rockefeller and Morgan and all these people came out publicly and said, oh, this is a horrible plan. Don't vote for this. It's going to ruin everything. The economy is going to tank. We can't handle this. And so the general public and the government officials that were voting for this bill thought that it was exactly what they wanted because they wanted something that would not benefit the bankers and would actually keep them in check and regulate them because that was kind of the whole point. And so this bill got voted through and it got passed. The Federal Reserve System was created. And yeah, so they got exactly what they wanted. And I do have a few quotes about kind of the reaction to this and what happened afterwards. So the first two come from Congressman Charles A. Lindbergh, and he's referring to the establishment of the Federal Reserve and specifically the act that established the Fed itself. He said, and I quote, This act establishes the most gigantic trust on earth, When the president signs this act, the invisible government by the money power proven to exist by the money trust investigation will be legalized. The money power overawes the legislative and executive forces of the nation and of the states. I have seen these forces exerted during the different stages of this bill. Later, he said, and I quote, The new law will create inflation whenever the trusts want inflation. It may not do so immediately, but the trusts want a period of inflation because all the stocks they hold have gone down. Now, if the trusts can get another period of inflation, they figure they can unload the stocks on the people at high prices during the excitement and then bring on a panic and buy them back at low prices. The people may not know it immediately, but the day of reckoning is only a few years removed. From now on, depressions will be scientifically created. 
And that's it from that senator. So I guess you probably get the idea. He laid that out pretty well, probably as well as I could myself. So there is no sense in me restating it. But to give you an overview, in case you missed kind of what he was saying, was that basically the bankers created this system, the Federal Reserve, and controlled it. They wrote it themselves, and they wrote it so that they would have all the power. And then what they would do is use this system, the Federal Reserve system, to prop up prices and bring the markets back up to new highs and create this time frame of inflation and a big bubble. And then what they would do is sell all their stock and everything that they had bought during the market crash and make a whole bunch of money and basically crash the market again. And as the market crashed again, they had already unloaded all their shares and they just let the markets crash down to whatever level they felt was good. Then they would artificially step in and buy a bunch more stock, prop up the market again and rinse and repeat. And so we saw this in the panic of 1907 before the Fed, and we saw it many times after the Fed has been created. I mentioned the 2008 financial crisis. That is a good example. You also had, shortly after the Fed was created, the Great Depression, which was a pretty big deal. And we have had many other crises as well. So the overall goal of the Federal Reserve was to keep the value of the dollar stable and to prevent major market swings and market crashes. Now, we've already established that they did not keep the market stable and they did not prevent giant crashes. We've had very many since the bank was created or the Federal Reserve System technically was created. And as far as keeping the value of the dollar up, it really actually is contrary to what they say now. Now the Fed says they want 2% inflation on average. And so you can't really have the value of the dollar stay stable and even and the same while it loses 2% of its value every single year. Those are contradictory goals. They can't both happen. And so they contradict themselves on that goal. So if it doesn't achieve either one of its main goals that it was created to achieve, and it definitely didn't achieve the implied goal of keeping a leash on the bankers and regulating the system, then what is the point of the Federal Reserve aside from these concepts of corruption and conspiracy? So speaking of the value of the dollar, this is a good time to bring this in. If you look at the value between 1700 and modern times, the value of the dollar basically stays fairly stable. If you're looking at a chart, it looks kind of like a worm that goes slightly up, slightly down, slightly up, slightly down. And usually the ups are when you have wars. So the War of 1812, the Civil War, basically time when more money gets created and printed and gets out there and more money is needed. Those times you do have inflation start to creep in. And then after the wars, then you have deflation, where the value of the dollar actually goes up. And that's kind of the path that it goes on from 1700 till just after 1900. And that is the time period before the Federal Reserve. Now, what happens after the Federal Reserve System was created, again, if you're picturing a chart and you can pull one up, it's very interesting because as soon as the Fed comes into play, you see a spike that basically goes straight up. So you have a line that's just slightly wavy that goes straight across and then all of a sudden shoots straight up. 
And that's all the way from just after 1900 to the present day today. And that is what inflation looks like. We no longer have any periods of deflation, and our periods of inflation are drastically more extreme than they were in earlier times. And it's not just because there were earlier times and things have changed and we can't have it that way again. You have this mentality that people spout off that deflation is bad, that deflation is bad for the economy, it's bad for us individuals as citizens and as purchasers of goods and people in the market and for businesses, but that's just not true. If you just use common sense and think about it, we have, let's say, a dollar, and if I have this dollar, is it better for me if that dollar buys me more things next year or buys me less things next year? Well, obviously, it would be better for me if the dollar buys me more things next year. And that's the idea. That's deflation. But what we are told today is that a slight amount of inflation is actually good, that we don't want that dollar to buy the same amount of stuff, and we don't want it to buy more stuff. We want it to buy slightly less stuff. And you probably wonder, well, why is this? Well, number one, if we have deflation and the value of our currency goes up, then people are going to be encouraged to save their money and to save it as the currency itself instead of investing it in the markets. Because if you have an inflation and the value of the dollar is actually going down, then you have to combat that somehow. If I have $100,000, I don't want to lose some of that money every single year by just keeping my $100,000. So what I do is I would take that $100,000 and I would invest it in the stock market or in bonds or treasuries, something, in order to get a higher return than the roughly 2% that I'm going to lose every year through inflation. And that's what I would be forced to do. So what that does is it inflates the prices of those assets that people buy and invest with, things like stocks and bonds and treasuries. The bonds give more money to the government, so they have money to use. It's basically a loan that the government's taking out from you. And with the stock market, we have already talked about how there are many people and many companies that really want stock prices to soar and blow up this big bubble so they can make a bunch of money. And this is a way to do so is through inflation. It encourages people to promote these concepts. And the other thing here is that governments borrow a lot of money. We currently in the U.S. have about $22 trillion, last I looked, worth of outstanding debt, plus I think around 40 something trillion dollars worth of unsubstantiated money that is owed that we do not have. And so basically we're kind of screwed. Like, how do you deal with this? Well... If the value of the money goes down every year, then what I can do is I can borrow, say, a million dollars and spend that million dollars right away. And I can buy a lot of stuff with that million dollars. But I might not pay back that million dollars until 20 years from now. Now, 20 years from now, a million dollars is not nearly as much as it was 20 years prior because inflation has eroded the value. So essentially, I get a million dollar loan and buy, let's say, a 
cruise missile of some kind. And then what I do is 20 years later, I pay off that loan and the money that I use to pay it off when I pay back that million dollars, there's no way I could buy a cruise missile for a million dollars 20 years from now. I would probably have to have $2 million to buy it. And so I end up being able to pay off my debts at a much lower true value than what I borrowed them at. And so that's good for a government who borrows trillions of dollars worth of money. And it's even better for them because they actually don't even try to pay back the money. There's no plan to pay back national debts across the world. The plan is for everybody to just keep borrowing money, keep inflating their currencies, and as long as everybody does it together, then the system can't fail. And that's the idea. And so what happens is all the governments are doing is paying interest on these giant loans and debt balances that they have. And even just these interest payments are very large, but they are also going down in value over the years because of inflation. So it works out for the benefit of governments. It works out for the benefit of bankers and brokerage firms when you have big bubbles that they can blow up in stock markets. And so we see that inflation is good for some, but we can't see how inflation is good for the common person, the normal individual or citizen or small business. Yeah, it's not. Deflation is what we would actually want, and that is definitely not what we have. And so what I would like to do is give a little mention here to a very early president, Mr. Thomas Jefferson. And he said, and I quote, and to preserve their independence, we must not let our rulers load us with perpetual debt. We must make our election between economy and liberty or profusion and servitude. If we run into such debts as that we must be taxed in our meat and in our drink, in our necessaries and our comforts, in our labors and our amusements for our callings and our creeds. And that's the end there. The point is that perpetual debt, like I've just been talking about, is bad. And he says that it will basically ruin the idea of what the country is, at least to our founding fathers. And that's actually what we have today. He mentions that if we run into these debts, then we will be taxed on our meat, our drink, our necessaries, our comforts, our labors, our amusements, all these things. And that's exactly what we have today. We are, test, we are taxed on the things we buy at the grocery store. We have sales tax. We are taxed on our necessaries, the things we need. And we are also taxed on our amusement, sometimes even more. And there are taxes on pretty much everything we do. In addition to this, we have, because of the perpetual debt problem, constant inflation, which ends up being a tax. It takes value away from us. It doesn't actually literally take our money, but it takes the value of our money. So basically our value is being taxed and we have no control over that. And yeah, that's what we have. And Thomas Jefferson saw this a long time ago and he predicted it and said it was not going to be a good thing. And I am here to tell you that in my opinion, it is still not a very good thing. So the next part I want to go through is going to be to wrap up the Federal Reserve System and get into the Bank for International Settlements. So I'm going to read a section that I found in my research here, and it has a few quotes in it as well. It says, 
The New York Bank was the key member of the Federal Reserve System due to the presence there of so many of the nation's leading financiers. The most powerful of all bankers was J.P. Morgan Jr., whose financial empire was rooted in London. His family business had been saved by the Bank of England. He insisted that his junior partners demonstrate a, quote, loyalty to England. Morgan was also a leading light in the Council on Foreign Relations, and Benjamin Strong was very much a Morgan man, having been head of Morgan's Bankers Trust Company and one of a half-dozen men at the secret meeting at Jekyll Island, where the plans for the creation of the Federal Reserve were hatched. That Strong was instrumental in carrying forth a plan to bail out England at America's expense is hardly surprising. As Rothbard put it, quote, In short, the American public was nominated to suffer the burdens of inflation and subsequent collapse in order to maintain the British government and the British trade union movement in the style to which they insisted on becoming accustomed. So you kind of get the idea here. And we hear some names that sound familiar. Of course, we have Morgan, but also we see the Council on Foreign Relations, which we talked about in the previous episode. You will probably hear that again. I'm not positive, though, but I would not be surprised. The next bit I have is from the author Mark Rick, and he said in his book, I quote, International bankers profiteer from sovereign state debt. The New York banks have found important profit centers in lending to countries plunged into debt by socialist regimes. Under socialist regimes, countries go deeper and deeper into debt because socialism, as an economic system, does not work. International bankers are sophisticated enough to understand this phenomenon, and they are sophisticated enough to profit from it. So that's the idea here. We see that under socialism, which is just the extreme version of centralized control, which we opened this episode with, the idea of a central bank with centralized control over money supply. Socialism is the centralized control of pretty much everything. Basically, the government runs everything. There is centralized planning. And the problem with this is that usually systems that are socialist run very high debt levels. And because of this, they need people to borrow money from. And they get it from central banks, the Federal Reserve, international banks in general, and, of course, people profit from that. So when we talk about the Federal Reserve system, they actually have the ability to create money out of nothing. And this is, of course, a very big advantage. So what they can do is, especially when countries get more and more towards the socialist side, where the government has more and more control, there's more and more of a welfare state, and more benefits that are being paid out when you have wars that are becoming more common and more expensive, then what happens is, in the U.S. at least, you have the Federal Reserve System that buys bonds and treasuries from the government. So basically gives the government a loan. But what they do is they just create the money out of nothing to give to the government. So it's not like the Federal Reserve has $10 million on their balance sheet in their bank account, and then they transfer that to the government, and then the government pays interest on it. No, the Federal Reserve has nothing in its account, and it magically gives the government $10 million out of nothing. And then the government is kind enough to pay the Federal Reserve interest on that money that was just created out of nowhere. So it's a really good system for the Federal Reserve. And similar systems exist around the world. 
And even if you did not have this ability to just create money out of thin air, you would still have the the business plan of a bank, which is to loan money and get interest on it. And that's how they make money. And they do this through the fractional reserve banking system where they just create, in a sense, more and more money the more you have customers put money into their account. So they'll take money from a customer, customer puts it in their account, then the bank will take that money and give loans and give that money out. But not only will they give the money out that someone put in their account, they'll give out up to 10 times what that person put into their account. So you can you get the point of the exponential growth of money, and then they're getting interest on all these loans that they're exponentially putting out there. And yeah, that's the whole system. So even if you don't create money out of nowhere through fractional reserve banking, you can, in a sense, create money out of nowhere. And it's all basically a giant scam. If you look at this objectively, there's really no other conclusion to reach. You might say that it's a necessary scam if you fall for it, but you can't really logically and rationally say that it is not a scam. So let's wrap up that little bit on the Federal Reserve. If you want more about that, then see our previous episode on the Federal Reserve and Fractional Reserve Banking and the like. What I want to do is move on to another bank here, and this is the Bank for International Settlements. Now, first, I want to read a quote from the chairman of the board of the Midland Bank. He was also the British Secretary to the Treasury. He was president of the Board of Education, which was set up by the Rockefellers. He was the first Lord of the Admiralty, Home Secretary, and Chancellor of the Exchequer, and Chairman of the Midland Bank, as I mentioned. So he got around. His name was Reginald McKenna, and he has many connections to many of these names. I mentioned the Rockefellers, uh, also the Carnegies and the Morgans. And yeah, so he said at one point, and I quote, Banks can and do create money, and they who control the credit of the nation direct the policy of government and hold in the hollow of their hands the destiny of the people. And that's the idea of what we've been saying. So in 1930, we have the creation of the Bank for International Settlements, now, uh, we'll read a few quotes here from Carol Quigley. I have mentioned Carol Quigley many times in this podcast, so you should be well aware of who he is. He said, and I wrote, and I quote, The apex of the system was to be the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks, including the U.S. Federal Reserve, which were themselves private corporations. Each central bank sought to dominate its government by its ability to control treasury loans, to manipulate foreign exchanges, to influence the level of economic activity in the country, and to influence cooperative politicians by subsequent economic rewards. We have another little bit from Frank Costagliola. Frank Costagliola in his book, The Other Side of Isolationism, The Establishment of the First World Bank, 1929 to 1930. And this was in the Journal of American History. 
He wrote about how the origins of the Bank for International Settlements lie in the United States, specifically New York City, that the individuals involved were international bankers who, despite their past differences, quote, worked together to establish a world financial order that would incorporate the federal principle of the American central banking system. Specifically, among them were people such as, quote, Owen D. Young, J.P. Morgan, Thomas Lamont, Parker Gilbert, Gates McGarrah, and Jackson Reynolds, who, in conjunction with the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, sought to extend the principle of central bank cooperation to the international sphere. And so I guess you should get the point there that we have this Bank for International Settlements that was created basically as a central bank for central banks. And so not only do you have this central banking concept that spreads throughout the world and is in pretty much every country around the world, but then you apply this in a worldwide context and you create a bank that controls all the central banks. So you have the central banks that basically control the governments through This specifically mentioned uh, treasury bills, but just through the money supply specifically. And then you have the Bank for International Settlements that controls the central banks. And they do this through basically the same thing, dealing with monetary policy and getting money out there and interest rates and foreign exchange rates and all that kind of stuff. So the name I wanted to highlight here that was mentioned in that article was Gates McGarrah. He was the head of the New York branch of the Federal Reserve, which at the time meant that he ran the Federal Reserve system. After this, the government side, the government-appointed board of directors got more control, and the leader of the New York branch was no longer basically the CEO, in a sense, of the central bank. There was a little bit more shared power, but at the time... This man, Magera, was the leader of everything, basically ran the Federal Reserve. But he left his post there to come on to the Bank for International Settlements. And he was the first chairman of the Bank of International Settlements. And we have an interesting side note here, since this is an episode on conspiracy, I wanted to mention this, that I found that his grandson was none other than Richard Magera Helms, who was the CIA Deputy Director of Plans at the time of the JFK assassination. We all know that JFK was very critical of the Federal Reserve, wanted to totally get rid of the Federal Reserve, and I'm not going to get into the JFK assassination right now, but he did basically tie into the previous episode, this episode, the next episode. He wanted to get rid of the Federal Reserve. He wanted to get rid of the CIA. He wanted to do many things, pull out of Vietnam. And he was involved in some defense contracts with Boeing, which was one of the biggest corporations in the military industrial complex at the time. And I think General Dynamic was the other company. And just all this stuff, there are many connections between what Kennedy was doing and what things and people and businesses and industries that he had his eye on and the things we're talking about with all this corruption and conspiracy. And sure enough, he got assassinated. So he was never never able to actually implement any of these things. And sure enough, everybody that took power after him just kept on trucking right ahead. So 
Back to the Bank for International Settlements. I have another quote here from Carol Quigley, and this will be the last one on the subject. He wrote in his book, I believe this one was from Tragedy and Hope, quote, The Bank of England, a Rothschild-controlled entity, under Montague Norman, contracted with Heimler Schatt, known as Hitler's Bank, to create an international clearinghouse called the Bank for International Settlements in Switzerland. By manipulating the price of gold and other markets, the acolytes of Cecil Rhodes, seeking to conquer the world through an Anglo-American establishment, could leverage the evolution of civilization and use human nature to control human beings. Or, as Norbert Weiner would later say, quote, human use of human beings, cybernetics. And that comes from Carol Quigley. That's pretty much a very loaded quote here. And he gets into the point of how the Bank for International Settlements was funded and who was behind the creation of it. He specifically mentions the Bank of England, which at the time was heavily controlled by the Rothschilds, and the banker that was known as Hitler's banker. And they worked together with members of the Cecil Rhodes Association. That would be the Society of the Elect, which we have talked about as well. And yeah, you see that there is some questionable activity in the creation of the Bank for International Settlements. Now, the next part I want to mention are some other worldwide banking institutions And we're going to start off by approaching the Bretton Woods Conference. So after World War II in 1944, you have this Bretton Woods Conference where the world powers met together to discuss how basically things would proceed from here. Now that we've had this giant world war, most of the countries had total decimation in both their markets and physically in their countries as well. And so what ends up happening is that the dollar gets set as the global reserve currency. And so instead of nations having to keep gold stockpiles, they could just keep dollar stockpiles. But not to worry, these dollars can be redeemed for gold. So what the U.S. government said was, use our dollar for your global reserve currency. All you nations, all you have to do is hold the dollar And what we will do is redeem it for gold anytime you want. So essentially, you still have a gold standard. Now, the ability to redeem dollars for gold in the U.S. was revoked, and citizens couldn't do this. But foreigners could do this, and foreign governments could do this, and that was the idea. So we know that later on, even that aspect got revoked, and now you just have a fiat currency, the dollar, that's backed by absolutely nothing as the global reserve currency all around the world. So all these nations are holding basically worthless dollars that are losing value every year, and the U.S. is actually able to export its inflation this way, which is really nice for us. We can create all these dollars out of nowhere. The Fed can give it to the government, and we can give a lot of these dollars to foreign buyers because these foreign governments need dollars to buy things like oil and deal with international contracts and international settlements. And so there are large amounts of dollars that need to be in the global markets. So we can print more dollars, 
create them out of nowhere, but give them to foreign countries. And so the inflation in the dollar gets spread out amongst the entire world instead of all of it being focused here in America, where we would have massive runaway inflation if we printed this much money and kept it all basically in-house. So that's the situation right now. But with the Bretton Woods Conference, not only did they deal with this reserve currency status, but they also created the international set of regulations and institutions that we see today, or at least the beginnings of what we have today. Now, I found a very interesting phrase from the Soviets. Apparently, the Soviets refused to participate in this, and they said that the institutions that were being created were, quote, branches of Wall Street. And because of this, they wanted to have nothing to do with it. Now, Wall Street often refers to people like the Morgans and the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds. And yeah, so we do see that, yes, they did have their hands in all this. And the institutions that Soviets were referring to were both the IMF and the World Bank. That would be the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And so what they do is basically control international monetary transfers they increase prosperity, and they try to end poverty. They do this by giving loans and grants to developing countries. And that's what they say they do. And to a degree, they do. I don't know if they really increase prosperity or end poverty, but to an extent, they do, and that is their goal. So basically, they are to be world banks, as the name would imply, and what they do often is give money to developing countries or countries that are in crisis. Sometimes they will give money directly, and sometimes they will back loans that are given by international banks. So if an international bank wants to give a loan to Somalia, but Somalia is in upheaval and there's no telling if the bank's ever going to get their money back if they give this loan, but the loan pays a really high interest rate, so they really want to do it. Well, what can happen is that the World Bank might step in and guarantee that loan. So then the bank has no problem loaning to Somalia because either they get a really high interest rate and they're extremely happy, or Somalia does not repay them and they get their money from the World Bank and they're still extremely happy. So this works out really well. The other way that the IMF and the World Bank bank play in these international systems is that oftentimes the IMF will give direct loans to countries. Now, what happens here is that typically you have a certain set of rules and stipulations that the country has to abide by in order to get this money from the IMF. So it's definitely a loan with strings. And there are many state leaders who have said negative things about this system. Many of them try not to get money from the IMF, but oftentimes they don't really have a choice. If they're a developing country, they can't get money any other way. This is the system that has been created in the world. And whether we like it or not, this is the playground we have to play in. And so sometimes they feel like they have to get a loan in order to keep their country going in a sense. But like I said, it does come with strings. So I don't know if we'll mention this. We'll probably mention this in the eugenics episode. But some of the strings um, also include things like population control measures 
and things like vaccinations, things like cooperation with specific foreign governments. Sometimes they stipulate that this country must use one of these contractors and give them a list of contractors that are basically international corporations, and they must go through some of these contractors when they spend their money that they're getting loaned from the IMF. And so you can see how crony capitalism might come into play here with all this stuff. And there is one specific example I wanted to mention. Recently, we had Julian Assange get arrested in the Ecuadorian embassy. He actually got kicked out of the embassy and then got arrested. But um, the interesting thing was that just after this happened, Ecuador was granted a giant IMF loan for the tune of $4.2 billion after they released Assange. And so you can see that... There are other politics that may be involved with which countries get this money. Now, another fact that I want to mention here is that, in general, the World Bank and IMF are funded by the participating countries, which is pretty much all the developed countries in the world, all the top countries at least. And so, what is essentially happening is that countries are either printing money, so taxing its citizens through inflation, or they're using money that was directly taxed from its citizens and then giving this money to the World Bank and the IMF. And that is where these institutions get their money is from the countries that back it up. And those countries obviously get their money from their citizens. That's how it works. So basically, your money can be taken from you by your government, given to the World Bank, and used as leverage against a country like Ecuador to pursue some political goal that someone wants. And yeah, it's all very crooked, but that's the way the system works. And so that's basically what we have here. Another interesting connection with our previous episode is that as you start looking through the heads of the World Bank and the IMF, there are many people on that list that also come from either the Trilateral Commission or the Council on Foreign Relations. So I'm not going to bore you with the list of names because I personally didn't recognize most of them, so I highly doubt you will either. But just the fact that there are many different individuals that end up running these institutions, the IMF and the World Bank, and the Bank for International Settlements as well, and the Federal Reserve. All of these institutions are very often headed by people from the Council on Foreign Relations or the Trilateral Commission, or if they're not headed by them, there are people that hold top positions in these institutions that come from these sources. So, Again, we see a lot of ties here from a lot of the other things we've been talking about. The next topic to cover is crony capitalism. Basically, for crony capitalism, when you're talking about crony capitalism, it is mainly using government for the benefit of private businesses. And usually, in a free market, the term capitalism is referring to voluntary exchange for mutual profit. So two parties voluntarily make an exchange and both parties profit from that. One party gets money that they feel is more valuable than the good they are giving away. And the other party is giving up money in exchange, getting a good that's worth more than the money they gave up to them. 
And so both parties are happy. It is voluntary exchange and everything's good. The problem is what happens when the government is influenced to step in and change those dynamics. So let me give a little random example here. We've got Alice and Bob, and they're both selling bottles of water. Now, Alice is selling a bottle of water for a dollar, and Bob is selling a bottle of water for two dollars. Now, of course, I am going to buy a bottle of water from Alice. It's half the price. It's only a dollar. Why would I buy it from Bob at two dollars? However, what happens if the government signs a contract with Bob and they start buying lots of bottles of water from Bob for $2 a bottle instead of from Alice at $1. Well, you would think that's kind of stupid, and why would they do that? Well, maybe Bob knows somebody, or maybe he's been lobbying the certain group that is in charge of these policies, or maybe he has been able to get a regulation put into place that selling of bottled water has to be done by a registered water salesman and he is the only one that's registered because he got this legislation passed, knew it was coming, and Alice hadn't had a chance to, or who knows why he is able to convince the government to buy from him. But this kind of stuff does happen all the time. There are plenty of examples of the government paying over market price for goods and services. Now, maybe Bob's bottled water service and company is very big. It's a mega corporation, and he sells all kinds of bottled water and other drinks of that sort. And so maybe he's used some of his profits and lobbied, like I said, to the government and has a lobbyist that's trying to push certain regulations or can convince certain representatives or whatever. Maybe he has offered jobs for the community. So he says, government, if you buy my bottled water with your giant contract, then I will open up a factory in this town. And this is a town that you need a lot more voters in to get reelected next year. So you're going to look really good. And this basically will guarantee your election. But I need this contract in order to open this factory. And I would only open it at this location if I got this specific contract. So that might be a way of doing it. Or maybe he has an open position on the board of directors or at a high-level executive position, and maybe one of the representatives is about to leave office. And so, hey, you know, I've got an open place for you. Let's get this contract through, make sure we've got good business going on, and I can make sure that you fill this vacancy for us. Or maybe we'll just create a new position and you can fill that for us, or whatever the case may be. So there are many ways that companies entice officials and get contracts. Some of them are very shady. Some of them are only slightly shady. Some of them come off as being a good thing. But the reality is, it is all crony capitalism. Anytime you have the government interfering with an interaction and a trade, that is ripe for abuse. And it does get abused. Now, when this takes place, you have a lot of waste. You have wasted tax money because the government is overspending for what they get. You have this wasted tax money is basically stolen from individuals, from me and from you, and used for something unproductive. Now, that means that I don't have that money anymore to actually spend on productive uses. 
So if the government would have only spent $1 a piece for this bottled water, then that means they would have had double the money that they ended up having to spend on different things. Maybe it was a million dollar contract. So instead of being able to buy a million bottles of water or maybe 500,000 bottles of water and then have $500,000 to spend on other productive uses that they need it for, instead of that, they spend the same amount, that million dollars, and only get 500,000 bottles of water and that's it. They miss out on that other $500,000 that could have been spent usefully in the economy and for whatever is needed, but it's wasted instead. You also have wasted money that is spent lobbying instead of improving a company. So Bob's company has a lobbyist or he's hired a lobbyist firm to represent him in Washington and kind of work out these deals and talk to the representatives and that kind of stuff, usually their staff. And so that is a good bit of money that he is paying that he could have put into his business in order to be able to bring his cost down so that he could compete better with Alice and offer a better product at a better price. But instead of using that money efficiently and using it to improve his product and his business, he is spending it to make sure he gets a contract that he doesn't deserve from a government official. That is waste. So there is a lot of waste here. Unfortunately, this money will continue to be wasted for many reasons. You've got the fact that we have these guaranteed contracts that Bob can get set up, and so he's not motivated to do anything different. And the government official or the government department that's in charge of these purchases also does not want to go to a cheaper product because then they wouldn't spend as much money, which you would think would be a good thing. But the reality is the way government works, they work on a budget. And if they don't spend all the money in their budget, then they don't get the same budget for the next year because the people in charge of the budgeting will say that, well, you may do just fine with $10 million last year, so we're just going to give you $10 million this coming year, even though your budget used to be $15 million. It doesn't seem like you need it. You, you're doing really good, so we'll just give you $10 million from here on out. Well, that's not what a department wants to hear. They want to continue to get that $15 million every year for their budget, and the only way they can do that is to spend it all. And well, this is a great way to spend it all and actually get some benefits out of it as well. So you've got this money that keeps coming. You've got the fact that the departments want to keep their budgets up. And then you've also got these handouts that everybody wants. The politicians want handouts. The corporations want handouts. The people in a community want hands out, handouts. Give us jobs. Give us free goods and services. Give us all these things, and everybody just wants a handout. And so even though if you look at the economics of the situation, everybody's getting screwed in a sense, except for a few specific individuals, they still do this and they still think they're getting a good deal. It's like the whole deal with getting free stuff and political elections that we're going to get free health care and you're going to get free retirement and you're going to get free insurance and all this free stuff. Well, no, nothing is actually free. So for a few more specific examples and policy examples, you've got price controls is the main deal 
because they distort the market. Instead of letting the market determine what a price is, the government steps in and says what a price is. So one example here may be subsidies. So maybe the corn farmers are not making enough money or, you know, of course they don't think they're making enough money. And so they lobby the government and say, hey, please subsidize our farming here because it's not very profitable for us right now. And so the government says, well, you know, the farmers create a very large voting block and corn is, you know, a very essential ingredient. And so, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's subsidize this corn and give you some extra money. That way, even if you do not have a profitable season, you will still make a profit. And yeah, so that's what they do. The problem here is that you have this huge distortion that does not allow the market to operate the way it should. It is not efficient at all. It should be that if corn is not a profitable good to produce, then not as many people should produce it. That makes perfect sense. If there's not enough demand for it, there's not enough need for it, then you shouldn't produce that. It, you're producing something that doesn't need to be produced. There is not a demand for it. Now, that's number one. Number two, they should be able to just lower their prices. And again, if you lower your price too much and you aren't able to make a profit, then you just shouldn't be in business. You shouldn't be in a business that is unprofitable. There, That is the market sign. Prices and profits are the market sign as to what is needed and what is the best allocation of resources. And if you get rid of those signs, then how in the world are you going to know what is actually needed, what the true demand is, what the best allocation of resources is. You're not going to know those things. And so the government may be scared that prices may go up too high or they may go down too low or whatever the case may be. But the reality is that this is how businesses determine what to do. This is how the market works. If prices are too high, then demand starts to taper off. And that means that production must also taper off. And this is how a business can make its decisions. It's based on supply and demand and prices and profits. But when the government comes in and distorts this, that does not work very well. Price gouging is a good example here where most people, when they hear the term price gouging, they think, oh, that's horrible. You know, this company is taking advantage of a situation and they're gouging their customers. So for example, let's say there's a gas shortage and gas stations were offering gas for $2 a gallon, but now they're charging $10 a gallon. And so you would think, you know, that's horrible. You know, they shouldn't be able to be allowed to get away with that. The government should make sure that they can't charge more than a normal market price. Well, the reality is that $10 is the market price in that situation because there is a gas shortage. There's only so much gas. So in order to make sure that they don't run out and that people are able to get gas, people that really need it, the price has to be high enough to facilitate that. If the price is only $2 a gallon like normal, or maybe you raise it 10 cents and 210 or 250 or something like that, you are still going to get too many people wanting to get gas and the gas station will run out. And if the gas station runs out, then people that really need it are not going to be able to get it. And that's not good. However, if you price it at $10 a gallon, then most people will not be willing to pay $10 a gallon for a gallon of gas. 
that means that there actually will be enough reserves there to be there for the people that really need it. And if someone really needs it, they will spend $10 a gallon. Now, in addition to this, the gas station is not going to be able to create the same volume and get the same revenue because they don't have as much gas. There's a gas shortage. So in order to be able to pay their bills and make the profits that they normally do, which normal profits is what most people are thinking when they ask for a market price, they want conditions to be normal. Well, for conditions to be normal for a business under that scenario where they're selling maybe 10 times less the amount of gas as they usually do, then they have to charge 10 times more on the price in order to make up for the difference. So you kind of see what's going on there. Price gouging sounds bad and it does suck for customers at times in certain situations, but the reality is it is the best allocation of resources for that situation. And it ensures that those resources are used well and used efficiently. However, if you make price gouging illegal and you cap it at $2 a gallon, then that gas station is going to run out of gas on day one and spend a whole week with absolutely no gas and no options and no profits and no money. And yeah, that's not very good. That's not an efficient economy. Some more examples of crony capitalism and government interference in markets. We've got hemp and CBD being illegal. That is a very good one because... There is nothing about hemp or CBD that should be illegal. Now, if you don't know, those come from the marijuana plant, and it is the THC that comes out of the buds of that plant that gets someone high. That's the narcotic, that's the drug aspect, is the THC. Now, there are plants that can be cultivated that do not have much THC at all and mainly have CBD. That is the other component in cannabis. And CBD actually has a lot of medical uses. It is good for headaches and nausea and pain and all these different kinds of things. However, even though it has no narcotic effect whatsoever and in no way is a drug that gets someone high or has that kind of effect on anybody, it has been illegal for a long time until about a year or two ago when it was finally separated from THC. And now THC is illegal in most places in America at least, and CBD is not. And the same thing is true of hemp. Hemp was the main source for rope and for paper and for all sorts of products and goods. And it is a very renewable source because you can grow hemp plants very quickly. They're actually good for the soil and you're not tearing down whole rainforests and things like this in order to get the wood. You're not having to do a lot of plastics that don't decompose and that are difficult to recycle. You can do a lot of this kind of stuff with hemp and out of hemp. However, hemp has been illegal because it is tied to the drug, even though it has, yeah, very little to do with the drug. And so even industrial hemp production has been illegal for a long time in America until recently. So these things have changed, so that's good. But you may ask, well, why? Why has it been illegal? Well, there are groups that are highly motivated to keep it illegal. For example, the timber industry is very motivated to keep hemp illegal because they don't want hemp to be an alternative to wood in order to make 
things like cardboard and paper and all this kind of stuff, the timber industry would much rather be the only supplier for these types of goods. You also have the oil industry and the plastics industry. They definitely don't want competition either. What about the large pharmaceutical companies? They probably don't want this brand new drug, this CBD, that has very few bad effects. And especially when THC gets legalized in certain areas, and that trend is continuing, these are options that people have that can get them off of prescription pain pills. And they don't need these pain pills and opioids and things like this. They could just use cannabis, whether it be CBD or THC or both. That is a big threat to large pharmaceutical companies and the healthcare industry in general. So there are people that would want these things to remain illegal, and they had remained illegal for a very long time. That is crony capitalism, where things are made illegal and kept out of the market and competition is shut down for basically no good reason other than to profit one group over another or secure one group's place in an industry or secure an industry as a whole and protect it from newcomers or innovation. Another good example of this is the timber industry again. They began promoting the green movement when that became a big thing. And you would think that this is a, this is a good thing. They are promoting environmentally friendly activities and behavior. That's, that's good. We like that. The timber industry needs that because they need to be replanting the trees and take good care of the ecosystem and that kind of stuff. And so that's good. And they were looked on as being a very morally righteous group at the time for putting their backs behind these types of policies and pushing for these types of policies and trying to promote this type of activity and behavior and business. And so, number one, they had the advantage of a very good PR boost. But number two, they were also able to get a lot of the timber land and the areas that have a lot of timber in them to get them sectioned off and basically off the market. So if the government controls a certain amount of land and expands their territory and regulates things to the point where newcomers cannot come into the timber industry and start to compete with the current players, then that's very good for the current players. So the current players already have a lot of land. They've already got a lot of timberland. They've got a lot of resources. They've got their businesses all set up. So if now they can put in place more regulation, make it even more difficult, section off other property that's not being used yet, go ahead and take it off the market, then that's very good for them. That stifles competition. It'd be very hard for a new entrant to come in and make a big impact because they'd have to jump through all these hoops. There's not as much land available, all this kind of stuff. So it's actually definitely in their best interest to push for the green movement. So this on the surface, does not look like crony capitalism. But when you really get down to the motivations of why they're doing it and what effects it's actually having, it really is. Let me read a few stats for you on the amount of money that had flowed through some political campaigns here. 
In 2008, candidates for office, political parties, and independent groups spent a total of $5.3 billion on federal elections. The amount spent on the presidential race alone was $2.4 billion, and over $1 billion of that was spent by the campaigns of two major candidates, Barack Obama, who had $730 million in his election campaign, and John McCain, who spent $333 million. In the 2010 midterm election cycle, candidates for office, political parties, and independent groups spent a total of $3.6 billion on federal elections. The average winner of a seat in the House of Representatives spent $1.4 million on his or her, her campaign. The average winner of a Senate seat spent $9.8 million. As of August 2012, and this had started in 2010, so over the span of about two years, 797 super PACs had raised upwards of $349 million, with 60% of the money coming from just 100 donors. This is according to the Center for Responsible responsible politics and with super PACs those were kind of a new invention they can raise unlimited funds and the catch is that the funds don't go directly to the campaigns but they can be spent to promote campaigns as long as it doesn't go directly through the campaign so yeah they found a little workaround here because there were starting to be cap limits set on how much could be donated to political parties and to individual candidates and all this stuff. And you heard how much money is floating around here, the $5.3 billion in 2008. That is a little ridiculous. And so if just getting a seat on the House of Representatives is going to cost you $1.4 million on average and a Senate seat $9.8 million, this was in 2010, so I'm sure it is much more expensive now, how in the world are you going to get into office if you're just an average person? Do you think that every average person, even every qualified normal citizen, is actually going to have a chance at getting a political seat? Well, not really, unless you get some really good backers, usually corporate backers, and when corporations and businesses back you up, what do you think they want? Well, they want you to lend them an ear towards things that might help them out in the future, to certain policy recommendations, and different things like that. So, yes, the money is free in a sense, but it doesn't come without a price. And that's how it works. For the final aspect of the relationship between corporations and government and corruption and influence... Let's mention the board of directors for a corporation. Now, the board of directors basically controls the company and controls the CEO. Sometimes the CEO is on that board, oftentimes, and sometimes not. But the point is that you have this small group of people, on average between 5 and 18 members. And I looked up some stats on this, and it's a little interesting. You've got over 80% of board members have been there for more than six years. Many are over 10 years and over 15 years that they stay on a board of directors in that seat. You have 85% of them are independent of the company. So these are basically outsiders that come on to advise the company. 74% are 50 years old or older. 
62% serve on multiple boards. Some, the majority of board members sit on more than one, oftentimes three or four or even more. You have only 17% of board members are women. Only 10% are minorities. So basically, you have small groups of old white men that are totally entrenched into these companies that sit in charge of multiple large corporations at a time, and they have the controlling interest in the large international corporations around the world. Now, as we have been talking about conspiracy and corruption, and you have these people and these certain groups that kind of control things behind the scenes, this is a good example. Now, there are plenty of board members that are not corrupt and they are not part of some sort of giant conspiracy. But the point is, we do know that there are people behind the scenes that do try to control things and they do achieve this endeavor. And how would they try to control a whole corporation? Let's look at, I don't know, GE or Microsoft or Google or any of these gigantic corporations that have business all over the world how in the world would you do that? You could even like have a CEO that is your man and probably still not push everything you want to push. However, if you are able to take one of your men and place him on the boards of five different international corporations and he has a very large say, let's say these are boards that only have five or six members, then you're going to have quite a bit of influence. Let's say you can get multiple board seats in a corporation, then you could sway maybe one or two people that are usually on your side, and you could push for whatever direction you want for the company on these very large, broad decisions that happen. The board of director, directors does make these decisions, and they are the ones in charge. And we do see a correlation here between those that, we have identified that work behind the scenes in these groups are oftentimes older white men. And this continues to be the power source above most corporations. And the stats that I was looking at were from the top 1,500 companies in the world. And so this is a bit of an issue, that you have a lot of concentrated power. Now, where the connection to government comes from is there is what many people refer to as a revolving door between corporate boards and government positions. So if you look through a list of any given company's board of directors, you'll find that usually at least a few of them have come from government positions. So oftentimes you'll have someone that may be a representative in one of the houses of the government of a certain country, and then when they are done with their political career, they move on and become a board member of an international corporation. And so the reverse is also true, where often you have people that were board members and CEOs of certain companies. Jamie Dimon is a very good recent example. He was also a CFR member and a CEO, and on multiple boards, 
and Trump nominated him to come in and be a part of his administration. What a shock. And so you often see these types of connections that kind of spread across all these things we've discussed, and you start seeing them line up, just one, two, three. So this is crony capitalism in a nutshell. It is not true capitalism. It is totally different. It is actually the opposite of capitalism. And that is basically the situation we're in now. And you hear people on the right, like the Tea Party candidates in America, they are anti-crony capitalism. And then if you go on the very far left, you've got the Bernie Sanders camp, and he has been very anti-crony capitalism. You had Ralph Nader on the independent side that used to run every election, and he was very, very against and outspoken against crony capitalism. The final topics to talk about in this episode are that of regulation and taxes. So just a little bit on regulation and laws. There is a very interesting one I've heard many times, and I will pass it along to you guys as well. And that is the law about monopolies and cartels and fair trade. So the problem in America, and I'm sure there are similar contradictions in other countries, is that in America, if you as a company are pricing your goods or services higher than your competitors, then by law, that is how you can tell that you are running a monopoly. And that is illegal. Now, we see that if you are charging the same price as your competitors, then that is evidence of you being involved in a cartel, which is also illegal. So, if you are pricing your goods and services lower than your competitors, then you are violating fair trade law, which is also illegal. So, what prices can you use to avoid the U.S. legal system? Uh, pretty much nothing. Use some Bitcoin or something. But if you are using dollars and going through the system they can technically get you no matter what prices you're charging and what you are doing as a company just because the rules and regulations are completely contradictory and basically corrupt. And if you look at the history of the U.S. attacking cartels and monopolies, it is actually a fairly corrupt history there. Most of the monopolies that have existed in America happened with the aid and under the sanction of the government. And usually these companies had influence in Washington and were able to get certain regulations and laws and finances to benefit their own companies and to keep them safe and insulated from their competition. And this is how they usually accomplish their monopoly status. And then the government steps in and says, hey, you have a monopoly and this is wrong. And so we need to step in. And yeah, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. There's lots of contradiction that goes on. But the point is that even according to the laws in the United States, there is no way to operate a business without breaking the laws of the United States. So, yeah, it's a little convoluted here. To talk about taxes, I want to look from a very basic view, but also a, an extremely important view of what taxes are at their core. Because 
if you look at what tax is, it is the government taking money from its citizens to fund specific programs and obligations that the government has. So it does give its citizens the ability to vote and have a say in how this tax money is spent. But the citizens are not given the choice of whether or not to give their money to the government. To make this very clear, the government is basically stealing money from its citizens and then telling them, oh, it's not stealing because you have a say in how this goes. Now, I'm not sure about you, but personally, my votes that I have casted in my life have never had any impact on how my tax money was spent. I have never been told how my tax money is being spent, and I have never been given an option as to what I would fund with my tax money. So under any other circumstance, this would be called theft. However, when the government does it, it is not called theft. They call it tax. And so it's a little complicated here. Uh, You could call it wrong, immoral, And in a future episode on the immorality of government, we will talk about taxes and that whole concept in general. But moving on from that, the tax code in general is very complicated. It is extremely complicated, and it benefits those who know how to take advantage of it. So oftentimes people who have large amounts of wealth pay the lowest amount of taxes because, number one... They know how to take advantage of the system, and they can pay people who know how to take advantage of the system. And number two, a lot of people with great wealth have influence on the system and lobbyists that they pay, and they're able to get certain loopholes initiated into the system that they can then later take advantage of. And so it is a fairly corrupt process there. Another tax that we have mentioned prior in this episode and in other episodes is the tax of inflation because that basically is a tax, and it is a tax that you have no control over, that the government can levy on you at any rate that it so desires, based on how many dollars or whatever your currency is that they want to create. And you will just lose that value in whatever money you have, and there's nothing that you can do about it. So inflation is the hidden tax. Now, we also have the idea of income tax. So in America, there was no such thing as income tax until Woodrow Wilson came along. And I guess we can talk a little bit about Woodrow Wilson. I think we have mentioned him before, but his right-hand man and the one that was called the kingmaker was Edward Mendel Howes. And he was the one that got Woodrow Wilson elected, ran his campaign, and was the one who was the most influential advisor to Wilson. Wilson used his advice on pretty much everything. Now, Howes had talked before about an income tax, a national income tax, and Woodrow Wilson had stated before he got elected that he was open to initiating an income tax. And sure enough, after Woodrow Wilson got elected, amongst many other things that I would call corrupt and totally immoral, Woodrow Wilson also started the income tax in America. And somehow America got along just fine without an income tax 
But now we are told that it would be impossible for the country to run without it. So we must have it. It's very important. And uh, yeah. So the other tax that is a little interesting is property tax. Now, the problem with property tax is that if you live in a country with property tax, you do not truly own whatever it is that you have as far as your property is concerned. So if you own a piece of land and a house, and even if you own it outright, you have no outstanding loan against it, you have no debt, it's not being used as collateral for anything, it is just a piece of land and a house that you own 100%, or so you think. The problem is that you have to basically pay rent to the government on it every year. You have to pay your property tax. And if you don't pay your property tax, then the government will take your house and your land away from you. So how can someone legally claim ownership of something that you own without you giving it to them? They can't. You actually don't own it. And that's the point. If you look at the definition of ownership, it means that you have the right to said object or property. So if you truly own your property, then you're the one that's in charge of what you do with it. If you want to add to it, if you want to totally destroy it, if you want to give it away, if you want to sell it, no matter what you want to do with your property, that is your right as an owner, if you are an owner. However, I know with my property in my house, even if I did have it 100% paid off and completely, quote, owned it, I would have to ask the government permission if I wanted to make changes to my house and do an upgrade on my house. I would also have to ask permission if I want to tear down my house. I would also have to pay more taxes if I want to sell my house. I also have to make sure I pay the government every year through property taxes or else they will take my house. Now, does it really sound like I own my house? If I can't do what I want with it and I have to pay somebody in order to maintain my ownership of it? Well, not really. Not technically. So, yeah, there's that. It would be nice if you could just totally own things that you own, but through taxation and through regulation, that is not possible. So we have even more government control and government interference in our lives through these techniques of regulation and taxation. Now, the other problem with taxes is that they fund wasteful and immoral programs without any oversight from taxpayers. So, like I mentioned before, I don't have the ability to vote on whether or not we drop bombs in Syria. I, I don't have that ability. I also don't have the ability to tell the government, hey, I object to this behavior, I don't agree with it, and I do not want my money to go towards funding it. That I don't have that option. Taxes are used, and even if they did not use my taxes directly, then the government could just increase inflation by printing more money, and then they could fund it that way. And I would pay for that because I am losing the value of my dollars, but at least they wouldn't take my dollars directly, maybe, and fund a war. But the point is that I have no say in how tax dollars are spent, and neither do you. We get a vote, but what if you vote not to go to war with another country, but 51% of your country votes that you should go to war? Well, your vote then does not matter, and it does not count, 
because your money is still going to get used to fund that war. And you better believe that that war will be funded and it will take place. So that's one of the biggest problems with taxes is that the government basically steals your money and funds whatever it wants. When the government has a program, let's say the education system or the war on drugs or the perpetual war against terrorism, whatever it is, these programs cost billions of dollars and the government continues not only to fund them, but typically they fund them at higher and higher levels every year. They're always asking for more money. We need more money for our national defense. We need more money to fight terrorism. We need more money for our school system to get better teachers. We need more money for whatever. There's always more money. In order to truly fight the war on drugs, we need more money to do it and more manpower. It's just ridiculous. I am going to read a quote that relates directly to this idea that I found recently. This is from a former FBI assistant director, Thomas Fuentes, and he said, If you're submitting budget proposals for a law enforcement agency, for an intelligence agency, you're not going to submit the proposal that, quote, We won the war on terror and everything's great. Because the first thing that's going to happen is your budget's going to be cut in half. You know, it's my opposite of Jesse Jackson's keep hope alive. It's keep fear alive. Keep it alive. And so I think he gives you the idea here of how it goes, where in order to get more money, then you need to present a problem. And if you present a solved problem, then you will not get more money. You will lose people, you will lose funds, you will lose power and control, your department will go lower down on the list. If you look into the rabbit hole of the Waco massacre, you see that the ATF was being threatened to be put under the authority of the FBI, and they wanted to make a name for themselves, and they did what they dubbed as Operation Showtime, and that was the Waco Massacre. And there's a lot that is going on with that, and we'll probably get into that at some point in this podcast. But the point is that in order to continue operating as a department in the government, your incentives are very different than a business. Your incentives are to make it look like you need more money. And it's never going to look like you need more money if you're doing a really good job in solving all the problems. So will the problems ever be solved? Well, if they are, then they'll probably just create more problems so that then they can get more power and get more money and get more funding and get more people. It's just this continuing circle that never ends. If there was a business that was completely failing and going bankrupt... We wouldn't just give them more money. That would be a very stupid idea because that business obviously is failing and is not doing very well. It's not operating efficiently or effectively. And so it needs to go out of business. And any capital that would have gone to that business should go to profitable businesses that are running efficiently and effectively instead of money being totally wasted going into a failing company. But... That's actually exactly what happened during 2008 in the financial crisis. Money from taxes from the government went directly to some of the largest banks in America that were failing and going bankrupt because of their business practices that were not very efficient or effective or moral. And so there is nothing that we can do about that. That's just the way the world works right now. 
Just in case you're getting slightly depressed with all this talk on corruption and conspiracy and the fact that you can do really nothing about it and it's way over your head and way out of your league, I will let you know that in some upcoming episodes, we are going to do a section on taking action, pretty much. It's, well, what can you do about it? And again, we've covered the idea that there is corruption in the system and there are things that go on that are not very good. They're not for your benefit individually. And it would be best to protect yourself against them, try to avoid them, try to counteract some of these effects that they may have on you as an individual or as a family. And so what can you do? And we'll do some episodes on agorism and on activism and on personal responsibility and learning and things like this that really get into how to operate outside of the system, how to avoid things like taxes, and basically just how can you distance yourself from all of this corruption and negativity that exists through the government. And we'll get there, and that will be much more positive. But for now, we're done. Thank you for listening very much. Please leave a rating and a review if you don't mind. I would love to hear from you as well. So my email address is ourfoundations at protonmail.com. Send me an email. I would love to hear any feedback that you have or questions or suggestions or anything. And if you are so inclined and you are on Twitter, you can follow us at foundationspc. And that is, I believe, all the links that I can give you. The rest will all be in the show notes, and those will be in the show notes. There will be a link to our Patreon page if you want to support financially. And thank you very much for those that do. There is also a link for the website if you want to look at some resources and books and podcasts and things like that that I've listed. There's a timeline there on what episodes are upcoming and the whole list of episodes that have come before. So check it all out. And hopefully you will come back next week as we get into corruption and conspiracy in the field of education. This one is very interesting, and we'll hear even more from people like the Carnegies and the Rockefellers and all these people that we keep hearing from. So, until then, I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.